folks, and welcome to the Source Code Podcast, sponsored by Ninja Jobs. My name is Chris Sanders, and I'm excited to have you in here for what's going to be our last episode of our second season. And man, let me tell you, it's been a great season. I'm really impressed by the diversity of folks we've had on. Uh, we've had folks like uh, Richard Baitlick and Grady Summers on, who both hold interesting positions and saw interesting history transpire in our field. Uh, we had folks like Sergio Caltagironi on, who not only has done some very important technical work, but is also using his technical skills to help fight uh, human trafficking via the Global Emancipation Network. Uh, we've talked Threat Intel with folks like Jen Colding, and of course, uh, more recently, we had Michael W. Lucas on to talk about his role and his thoughts on writing and uh, what it's like to be an author in the InfoSec space. So all really exciting guests. Again, a lot of great diversity in the level types of expertise uh, from the folks we're talking to. Of course, we're going to keep that going and end on a high note here with our guest today, who's Gwen Betts. Now, I'll talk a little bit about how I met Gwen and came to know of her uh, on into the podcast, but suffice to say, I think she has really fascinating perspective because she's not just a member of the information security community. She's also someone who spends a lot of time focused on marketing and also user experience. And if you know me at all, you know I'm a big UX nerd. Uh, I obviously study a lot of the intersection of psychology and information security and a lot of the that ways that manifest both for users and infosec practitioners is in UX. And UX is so much more than the design of, of, of the user interface. There's a lot that goes into there, and we're going to talk about that as well. So I think Gwen has a fascinating perspective, and I'm excited to have her on. So without further ado, let's get on over to Gwen. Gwen, how are you today? I'm great. How are you doing, Chris? I couldn't be much better now. So Gwen, uh, a lot of people listening probably know you, but for those who don't, tell us uh, who you are and what you do. Yeah, so hi guys. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Gwen Betts. I am a director of UX at Rapid7. I actually came into Rapid7 via the command acquisition, which if you're not familiar with command, it was a security orchestration automation platform. Um, as for who I am and my background, I am a designer by trade, but I have a bunch of different experiences uh, across marketing, across customer experience, and across customer success. Uh, I really feel that all these different experiences that I've had have informed for the better uh, my work in design and user experience to be particular. Uh, and now in the security realm, um, especially a, an interesting hot topic between UX and security, I definitely feel that those experiences have lended themselves for me to better understand how to bring, you know, more secure experiences to the masses. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you've obviously just recently gone from a startup, you know, fairly small company into a much, much larger company. And I guess what that generally means for a lot of people is having to wear less hats, like you're able to focus in more areas, in one area as opposed to many. And I know with, with Rapid7, or excuse me, with, with Command, you were doing UX and also marketing. Are you still doing both of those things with Rapid7, or are you more heavily focused in just UX? Yeah, so I'm definitely heavily focused in UX now. Uh, I still work and collaborate with the marketing team, especially during the transition, and we are still going through a transition phase. Um, I like to still be involved with that because I do believe that marketing also influences UX and vice versa, um, but I don't officially wear that hat anymore. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I mean, I, I guess if you think about it, for you, know, you have to market to your existing customers too, and and their primary interaction once they buy your product is the product itself. So it's it's and how it works and how it presents itself is also a part of marketing. So that makes that makes sense. Yeah, it's all about the life cycle, right? That's why, you know, in a perfect world, there are no silos. We all work and collaborate cross-functionally well together um, because this is just a life cycle, right? And when you think about it, companies and people don't view you and your function with regards to the company as different. They just think of your company and your product, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Well, well, let's learn about you, and we'll kind of we know where you're at now, and we'll kind of work our way back up through that. And I know you're uh, you're in, in Boston now, but you're you're not originally a Bostonian. Where's the, where's home for you? Yeah, so I'm originally from Toledo, Ohio. Toledo, so that's that's northern Ohio. Yep, Northwest Ohio. <clears throat> okay, I, you know, I'm from Kentucky, which bordered Ohio, but I was from Western Kentucky, so I was a long way away. And and really, what I know of Ohio is basically um, skyline, chili, and Cincinnati, which is the southern part, of course. And I know, delicious. Yeah, and I know LeBron James and Akron because uh, I'm a sports fan. I don't know much about Toledo, so so tell me something about Toledo and what life was like growing up there. Uh, so what I really loved about Toledo was it was um, as a small city. Um, but it is a more progressive city. 
And I really loved growing up in that environment of with different experiences with different people with different cultures. Um, and as a city, if, if you don't know much about Toledo, it is and has been in the Rust Belt in the past. So it's been hit by a little harder times. But what that's created is a city and a people that really just want to hustle and make things work. And I think that's really unique to find. Mm-hmm. Do you do you kind of I mean, it's right there. I mean, you're, you're kind of close to, to Michigan there and in and, and Detroit. I mean, do you kind of consider it kind of similar in a similar vein to like like a Detroit or even like a Pittsburgh when you talk about being sort of a Rust Belt, maybe even kind of a blue collar city? Absolutely. It's definitely a blue collar city. And, um, you know, I always refer to Toledo as mini Detroit anyway, because a lot of the things that uh, ailed Detroit also ailed Toledo because they are very connected cities. Um, at, for example, right, the Detroit Tigers, our team, the Toledo Mudhens, are the farm team to the Tr- Detroit Tigers. Okay. Um, I'm a big baseball fan. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, but, um, so are you similar a, are you industries a ti- affect them? Are oh, you, sorry. Are, go on. Are you a Tiger fan or have you adopted the Red Sox? Oh no, good tigers! Like I can't, I can't betray them. Okay, good. That that's that's good to hear. I mean, I you know I understand sometimes you got to support the home team town, but like your home is is Toledo, so yeah, I get that. I don't guess I never realized. I'll be honest. I I knew Toledo was up there. I didn't know how close it was to Detroit until we were doing this interview, and I, I looked and I was like, oh yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's it's an extension of Detroit, so that's uh, not something I entirely realized uh, about the geography of Ohio, but but now I do. Uh, <laughs> um, so. Tell me, what kind of student were you when you were, you know, middle high school time period? So I loved learning. Um, I loved school. I would consider myself a good student, but I'm definitely someone who likes to learn on their own as well. And as far as high school and middle school, um, I, I, I just loved learning, right? And especially science and technology. And in a lot of ways, I actually picked up web development on my own in those years. Um, this was back in like the late 90s. There weren't really, there wasn't really coursework for this then, especially in the high school level. So I really just had more of an hands-on experiential learning for myself with regards to some of the skills that I have today. Mm-hmm. So, so you were interested in technology and, and things like that. And, and, and I guess HTML and writing web pages was kind of your introduction to that? Yeah, um, nerd fact, I learned HTML and CSS and Photoshop so that I can make anime websites. <laughs> okay, well, that's okay. Well, here, I'll, I'll match you. I learned HTML and CSS and Photoshop so that I can make wrestling websites. <laughs> <laughs> a nerd of a different kind, I like it. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think there's not too much uh, too much different there. I still remember the first website I made to, to show off to all my friends. It was a wrestling website featuring The Undertaker and Stone Cold Steve Austin and all those folks, and, and everyone was amazed, and I was like, this is awesome. I'm going to keep doing it. So, so That whatever. is so awesome. Yeah, so what, whatever works. Now, was there a lot in your, your school, or was there a lot going on? Like, Was there like a computer club, or a lot of stuff, that, that or any stuff at all that really like helped you, or was this all pretty self-directed? So this is very self-directed. Um, excuse me. I actually went to a performing arts high school because um, I was interested in things like theater. I was interested in things like dance. And um, in a lot of ways, it was it was a small school, first of all. So there wasn't anything technology-oriented at all. In fact, I oftentimes was helping my teachers learn how to use their technology. So it was kind of the other way around. Um, while, of course, getting uh, education um, from a high school standpoint. Um, but most of it was self-directed for that reason. Okay. That makes sense. Now, what did your, what did your parents think about this? I mean, were they, did they think this was like a good use of your time? Did they encourage it? So my dad, uh, was actually a sysadmin, um, back during the dot-com boom. Okay. And unfortunately lost his job in that area, uh, during the bust, but he was also originally a paramedic. So he just went back to doing that. So I've always grown up with computers, even when I was really, really young, because my dad was obsessed with computers, obsessed with networking. Our entire basement was just full of a ton of computers and experiments that my dad was doing. And even to this day, he still runs his own web server. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Does it, does it have like any, does he host any of your old anime websites on it? Anymore? Oh, he totally does. <laughs> kind of embarrassing sometimes but also great yeah that's oh i mean i guess it's like some parents dig out old pictures and like your dad can like dig out old websites you've designed <laughs> that's exactly what he does <laughs> that's awesome thanksgiving uh there sounds sounds like a, a fascinating place to be uh, um so um while you're in high school did you well i always ask this question you know what was your first job you ever had ah uh, so i was actually a hostess at a big boy at a big boy, the frishes with the the guy who stands yep. out with the okay yep. the checkerboard and the the big hair. Okay, that's that's interesting. Oh, yeah. How did you like the job? 
It was, I actually loved it. I didn't get a job until I was about 15 and a half, 16 years old. And for me, it was a means to earn money and kind of do my own thing, go off on my own. I sort of saw it as, you know, before turning 18, having some sense of independence. Yeah. So that was kind of your, your gateway to, to like that sense of independence. And, and I think that that's true for a lot of people, right? When you have your own money to spend, that that's really the yep. thing that is for a lot of people, probably their first bit of independence is, is that, uh, and then maybe eventually learning to drive and all that. So that, uh, oh, yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Well, so you're in high school and at some point, I guess the thought of college comes up. So, so what was your thought process in terms of where you went to college and how you decided what to major in? Yeah. So that was an interesting thought process because shortly after the job at Big Boy, I actually was able to get a job as a pharmacy technician uh, at a local pharmacy that um, distributed drugs to nursing homes and rehab centers. And so I actually spent five years as a pharmacy tech and um, wanted to major in pharmacy early on. In fact, that that was the declared major that I went into at first. Um, but that industry is very cutthroat. Uh, it's really, really difficult to get into the programs because even till to even to this day, they still have like only the in the area that I was in, like only 100 students per year get accepted, hyper competitive. And at the time, this is when the industry, the pharmaceutical industry was really starting to blossom. Um, and I got firsthand experience as a pharmacy tech seen what my life could be like as a pharmacist and I just decided it was not for me mm -hmm. so falling back into okay what can I do and what can I major in that utilizes my skills that you know I enjoy and this is in the early 2000s when there were user experience, first of all, was not called user experience. As a field, it didn't really exist yet. There weren't a lot of programs around this. So I just felt like my background in web development and design, there was just no possibility for a career there. So I actually started maj majoring in architecture next. Oh, and wow. yeah, because it was a way to, it's a similar skill set, right? Like a little bit of engineering and a lot of bit of design and form and function mm -hmm. just for people. Yeah, and I loved it in theory, and I loved the history and practice of it. I just did not love physically building models because it's very time intensive, and it's it, it's got to be perfect. Yeah, and like I started learning AutoCAD, but that is also another program that was in its infancy, and you still did things the manual way back then. And so I spent about a year and a half doing that, um, and I was at Bowling Green State University, and it was actually in the same college as. Um, uh, uh, it was in the College of Technology, which had another major called Visual Communication and Technology. And the way that the College of Technology works is they want you to take one class in the different areas of that college so you get a more well-rounded education. And I ended up taking like VCT 101, which is just an overview of what that major could be. And what I realized, um, to give you some background about what the program is, is it's this cross-functional program between uh, visual communication, so graphic design, visual design, um, marketing, business, um, and any sort of like engineering that could come into the fray. And the four different disciplines that they had at the time were video, interactive media, prints, and photography. And so I got introduced to this major then, um, and I got to do a bunch of different things, and I quickly realized that this major is exactly what my skill set was before, and that I could actually do this for a living. I want to pause for just a second to tell you about CloudShark. I love CloudShark. It's just like Wireshark, but it's actually web-based, so it can often get you to the answer you're looking for quite a bit faster, and it also allows you to pass around URLs instead of files, which is a lot easier, especially when you're dealing with large capture files. I actually used CloudShark when I was writing my book, Practical Packet Analysis, and I use it at home in my lab to organize and index my packet captures. It's really convenient, has a lot of really cool advanced features, like a deep search for matching packets with standard filters, and an ability to do IDS signature matching within your packet captures. It's all really great stuff. Now, they've created a coupon code just for listeners of this podcast. The code is source code 17, source code 17, and listeners of this podcast will get 20% off their first year of CloudShark if they sign up for a yearly count. That's a total of four months for free, and it's a really great deal. Again, I'm a huge fan of CloudShark, and I think you'll like it too. Let's get back to Gwen.
you mentioned something else I want to go back to here for just a second as well. Uh, your job as a, as a pharmacy tech. And I, I'm curious because you lived in, in what I guess I would consider probably a more, um, not necessarily a rural environment. I wouldn't, maybe not an urban environment as well. I don't know how you would, you would classify it. Yeah, I'm not with. sure either, to be honest. Uh, I guess this may, maybe even a suburban environment, somewhere in between. Yeah, urban, it's definitely like rural. kind of suburban, urban, s. <clears throat> yeah. Um, now I know I lived in a highly rural area, and I know uh, there was there was two pharmacies in town, and they always had you know high school people working there, and it was the best job in town. It was the job everyone wanted. It was super competitive, even at that level, just for a couple reasons. One was that it, it paid better than most of the other jobs. The other was it was inside, so it meant you you weren't you know out in the in the hot sun working in, in, in tobacco or soy or corn or something like that, and it was you know not hard physical labor. Uh, and, and the bonus was if you were into it and loved it, it naturally transitioned into like a career in that maybe at some point, if you, if you went to school, was it, was it also that way where you were, that it was a highly desirable job for those reasons or any others? Yeah, definitely. And so you're right. Like it was highly desirable because in a lot of ways that can be a career too, right? Um, it was, it paid well above minimum wage. Um, and it d- did give people the opportunity that if they wanted to get into this company in particular, they could grow in other areas if they wanted to. The trick here was most people didn't know that this existed at the time. And I was 16 when I took that job. Now, in the state of Ohio, they've passed laws that you have to be 18 to be a pharmacy tech now. Oh, wow. So hiring um, teenagers into pharmacy technician jobs isn't possible, at least in Ohio, but I know that's also a state-by-state thing. So I'd be curious to know if they changed that um, in Kentucky as well. Yeah, I need to look up on that. I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know as many folks there now, so I don't know if there's still teenagers working in those, but I know that definitely was the, the most desirable job uh, at the time. And, and those were the folks who, like I said, made the most money and, and less physical labor. And, and some, of them yep. would, some of them would go on to be pharmacists. Although I will say, I think a lot of them I know, uh, kind of like what you mentioned, they, they thought they wanted to be pharmacists and then they really got into it and looked at what was involved and decided it wasn't for them and, and went on to do other things. Yeah, it's almost like, I mean, it wasn't an internship, but it was a great intro into the world. And I did it for five years, right? So you definitely get a preview of what your life could be. Yeah. And I mean, it's also one of those jobs where, I mean, you, you learn work ethic and you learn customer service to some degree. And yep. and that's that's certainly important. Um, okay. So so you're in college and you're, you're doing uh, this major. And I guess it's, it's getting to be the time period where you're about to graduate and you have to think about, you know, what's next. So what, what was that for you? Yeah, so the major that I was in also did the co-op program, and, and I, if you're not familiar with co-op programs, what they do is you have to take a full semester of uh, an internship, but you work full-time, and my major required three of these. Um, and the idea was you would come out of school with a year's worth of work experience by doing this. Um, the benefit of that is I also, um, the internship that I did my last year graduating also offered me a job post-graduation. Oh, wow. And I was doing design, um, web development, and some customer support work for them as an intern. Um, And this was a company, a small digital agency that was about 20 people. Um, And this company at the time really needed somebody to own support. Like it kind of been passed around between different interns and different people in the office. And it came to a point that they needed someone in technical and customer support. So they hired me full time to do that. Okay. Uh, now the HTML and, the, and that, the, the technology's part of that, was that, did you learn and further refine that skill as a part of your curriculum in your major? Or was that something you continued to do independently? Um, so kind of a, a little bit of both. Um, I'll say curriculum is usually a little bit behind with regards to how fast technology is is moving, right? Mm -hmm. And at the time, like, they were still teaching, like, tables as, you know, layout versus divs and, and other more modern ways of viewing HTML and CSS and building websites. Not to say that it was wrong, but it was a little bit behind. So in a lot of ways, like I started pushing the boundaries on my own and being a little bit more self-directed, but I also met other students who kind of had a similar background as me. So we learned from each other while also supplementing these skills and, and getting the opportunity to learn real life application. Um, within my co-ops, but I also took, even when I was younger, when I was 15, I did my first freelance job as well um, to kind of learn real-world application of, of HTML and CSS and other technologies. 
Yeah, uh, kind of an aside to this, and something I, I thought of. I mean, when when you and I were both learning HTML, it was it was often just that it was HTML, it was CSS to make it more fancy, and then maybe occasionally you would you would pull in a little bit of, of JavaScript to make something fancy. Nowadays, in in most work environments, you see people using these big, massive JavaScript frameworks, things like Angular and and, and all those sorts of things. And I, I, you know, those don't exist so much when we were when we were learning. And so now, when you have kids who are in the same position we're in and they want to start learning, some of them probably start out there. They start out and they they start reading guides on, on Angular and 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 the JavaScript libraries and, and such. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, do you think? I mean, obviously there are benefits to those frameworks, or else we wouldn't use them. But do you think? It's better for for kids to start with the basics, or, or, or what are your thoughts on that? Just at a high level. So, I, I have a couple thoughts on that, and I want to also say, like, the first I think I was fifteen or sixteen years old. I got this awesome JavaScript book called Pure JavaScript for Christmas. I was the happiest girl in the world when I got that thing um, because I was just so excited to learn JavaScript, and it was <laughs> like this thousand-page book of all of the different handlers and all the different things you could do. Um, but an aside, I. I actually think the frameworks and like kids learning the frameworks and people new to the frameworks are good because what you have to think about, Chris, is it's about what is the value that they're trying to get out of this. If it helps them get to that faster and a framework helps them get to that, then that's great. Um, the only thing that I will say is it still is important to learn the basics and foundations and question why does this framework work the way that it, it, it does. The thing is, though, is if they're getting really deep into these frameworks, they'll sort of uncover like the foundations of JavaScript that helped build this knowledge up to begin with. Yeah, so I guess you're talking about kind of a, a bottom-up versus a top-down Mm-hmm. Type approach. So, so tell me, tell me this, and I don't know if this is something you, you thought about a lot, but in your opinion, it's, if say you know Gwen Betts is in charge of designing curriculum for a college that that is, and there's a major for you know web development, UX, uh, those things, which approach do you think is better, the, that bottom up or top down? Uh, so if you're talking curriculum based, um, it's a little different. And I will say I think people learn in different ways. So when it is a little more self-directed and they choose to go like, hey, I want to learn this framework and then I'll learn more about, you know, what JavaScript means and how it actually functions. Um, that's a different learning style. And so when you talk about like um, formal curriculum based things, I do think the bottom up, like here are the foundations that you're learning, why this is the way that it is with like synthesis and app application classes. So I would consider frameworks application classes um, to build on top of that foundational knowledge. Interesting. Now, I want to take that and let's apply it to another, I guess, facet of of what you do is is the graphic design type work. So, you know, you mentioned Photoshop a couple of times and and, uh, that's, that's a tool I'm familiar with a little bit as well. And I think, I know for me, I've never really considered myself an artsy person. I I, I couldn't tell you, I couldn't break down a lot of the components or the, the things of what I'm doing, but I can do some interesting things with Photoshop. And I definitely for myself took a very top down approach to graphics um, and that I, I basically learned Photoshop and learned how to do what I did and learned elements kind of, you know, backwards from that perspective. Do you think the same applies there in regards to bottom uh, up versus top down approach? It's interesting. Um, you know, I, I do think it still depends on what people's own personal learning styles are. Um, I was someone who, and I'm interested in knowing like your definition of top down, is that like, trying to do it and then learning the basics or learning the basics and building it up. So, so when I say top down, I, I mean, basically saying, you know, get, if someone has a specific thing they want to build in Photoshop, right. And they've yep. never used Photoshop. So they, they open up Photoshop and they learn how to do it. And then as they're doing that, they learn the components of it. So they're starting okay. with, with the whole and working down into the individual components. Okay. So top down. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that's how I started as well. Uh, I definitely started from a top down approach and sort of reverse engineering mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it. the way that I mentor people right now is more of a bottoms-up approach mm-hmm. um, because I, even though, you know, I was able to do it and that's just the way that I learned, once I went to college and actually took visual and um, graphic design classes, that was much more the bottoms-up approach, I got better, faster, you know, more effective, faster mm-hmm. when I understood why I was doing the things that I was doing. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I think, I guess, from my perspective, 
there's no substitute for being able to connect some of those fundamental concepts to like real world things and, yep. and like basically making them matter. And that, that's probably, I think that I've always thought that's a reason why people have such a struggle with math is people hate word problems. And so the teachers don't give you as many of them when in fact it's the word problems that are, you know, how problems present themselves in life. So if you can connect, yeah, context. yeah if you can consider, consider those basic concepts and connect them to real world things that matters, I think that helps maintain interest. I, I think, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I, I, my opinions kind of waver back and forth on, on top down versus versus bottom up, and probably the correct answer is with most things is a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. But um, I don't know. I, I pretty much agree with what you said. I just think it's a fascinating thing to consider, uh, especially when I think you and I learned in a kind of a same way, which was probably more of a, a top down type way. Yep, I would agree with that too. And again, you saying like it a little bit of both. That's why I'm always like it depends. Yeah. Yeah, and people learn in different ways, right? And uh, for for yep. every every person like us that learn top down, there are plenty that learned bottom up as well. So that's for the folks listening. That's important too. There's there's not just one way to do this stuff. Correct. So, you know, back to your your kind of timeline here. You, you you're now working for this digital agency, and I guess you know, I'm I'm maybe skipping a few steps here, but at some point security enters the equation for you in the information security space. Is that does that not happen till? command or is that something you're interested in before where, where do those things link up so it it did not happen until command um and so i've always been aware of security in the cybersecurity space and information security um, but it's never until i joined command been front of mind and when i was given the opportunity to join the team as the first designer and hire number two to the team um I was enthralled. And so I remember this day still very clearly. In fact, yesterday was the two-year anniversary that I joined Command. Um, I had uh, coffee on New Year's Eve with Jen Andre, the founder and CEO of the company. And she I only talked to her in, in, for an hour, but she blew me away with what she wanted to do and like her own experience. And it made me, A, want to work with her and B, like investigate what design and security could be. Right. Mm -hmm. And before, like it always kind of existed in, in the background for me because I'm designing digital experiences and security is a facet of that. Um, but it never been top of mind simply because and as I, I think we'll discuss more, security and UX have typically not been blended well together. Um, and so it just never really came up on the UX side of things. Yeah. So it, you, it, it's almost like you just saw this as another challenge area where you could apply, apply the things you're good at. Yeah, and especially like when you consider the ramifications of cybersecurity, it's it's super influential and very impactful. And especially with the proliferation of technology growing the way that it is, that's going to be coming increasingly more important. I want to pause for just a second to tell you about CloudShark. I love CloudShark. It's just like Wireshark, but it's actually web-based. So it can often get you to the answer you're looking for quite a bit faster. And it also allows you to pass around URLs instead of files, which is a lot easier, especially when you're dealing with large capture files. I actually used CloudShark when I was writing my book, Practical Packet Analysis, and I use it at home in my lab to organize and index my packet captures. It's really convenient, has a lot of really cool advanced features, like a deep search for matching packets with standard filters and an ability to do IDS signature matching within your packet captures. It's all really great stuff. Now, they've created a coupon code just for listeners of this podcast. The code is source code 17, source code 17, and listeners of this podcast will get 20% off their first year of CloudShark if they sign up for a yearly count. That's a total of four months for free, and it's a really great deal. Again, I'm a huge fan of CloudShark, and I think you'll like it too. Let's get back to Gwen. You know, I, I would certainly consider, I mean, you say you've only been, I guess it's been two years since that happened. So, you, you know, you probably haven't necessarily considered yourself part of the security community for long, but you're definitely a part of it. I mean, you're, people know the work you do. They appreciate the work you do. You speak at conferences, you're around, and, and you're definitely part of that community. And before that, obviously, you were, you were more focused on, on kind of generalized UX within the, within the space and, and marketing. Um are there, are there any like staunch differences between kind of those communities and user groups and things like that? I think, I think that's something people are interested at because, because most of us are just security practitioners. We only know the security community versus this broader, you know, UX or, or marketing community. So any thoughts on that? Yeah. So I'll say every community has their idiosyncrasies, right? Mm -hmm. And every community has like 
the things that they care about and and certain characteristics but from a macro level i'll say like the needs and the wants of a community and the way communities typically behave i don't actually think differ all that much across disciplines uh, it just becomes like what are the topics of interest what are the hot button issues um, as vi individuals how do we collaborate together and how do we welcome people into the community uh, but I have found personally that that doesn't vary wildly across different communities. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Uh, tell me this, and this is something I've, I've struggled with is I'm, I'm a business owner now and I, I do a lot of my own marketing and, and marketing to security people is, is a challenge for a couple of reasons. Uh, I think one of those is that there's just so much snake oil out there and, and things that are marketed as the ultimate solution when, and, and they're, when they're far from it. Uh, and also I think security people are generally uh, a little less trusting uh, of marketing and, and, you know, you know, people don't like having their, their, you know, they don't like unsolicited emails. Um, they're more privacy aware, things like that. Um, is that something you struggled with when you started marketing specifically to security people? To be honest, no. Um, but I think there are a couple of reasons why. Um, a, I will agree with you uh, that security folks are very uh, skeptical by nature. And I mm -hmm. think that's a good thing, right? Um, security folks in privacy and security are not the same thing, but there are definitely a lot of overlaps. So they're very concerned with their information being, you know, information that another company may or may not need being misused in some way, shape or form. So I can also understand that skepticism, but I agree with you that there is a lot of snake oil out there and there's a lot of FUD out there as well that makes the problem worse. Right. So it ends up making people just very hesitant to trust marketers as a whole in this industry. Um, but one of the things that I fundamentally believe, whether it's UX, marketing, anything, like if you are making something for the community, you need to deeply understand the community, the users, the people. And to do that, you have to actually embed yourself in the community and become a part of it. Right. That makes sense. And so, yeah, to, to answer your question, um, I actually did not find it hard to market in this space for that reason, because I think this industry craves real authenticity it craves like people to people connections and so one of the things that i think the future of marketing as a whole but is especially evident in security is community is the future of marketing and marketing at, um, from a people standpoint so like the people on your team and your company talking to other people um, that's that's where we did really well that's what we did really well and just trying to create something valuable for the community. And the only way you can really do that is if you talk to the community. Right. And, and I think it's important you mention that because you mentioned the personal side of it. And, and I look at the companies who are doing it well versus those who are not. And one of the things, and actually the reason I, I came to know you was because I noticed the marketing that Command was doing. And I, I remember saying to myself as someone who's kind of aware and thinks about those things, wow, this company does it really well. And the reason I was able to get in touch with you is because every time you wrote something, it you know it said Gwen on it, right? And every time anybody for Command wrote something and it had a name associated with it and I could click it and there was a picture and then I could go find the person on Twitter and, and interact with them and, and things like that. And that is starkly different from a lot of companies, especially a lot of big companies, wherein when they put things out, it's just, you know, Company XYZ put this out and there's not necessarily a name tied to it or even if there is like you can't really pivot from that into into more or like read other things that person has wrote. Um, but with, with what y'all do with command, um, like I said, it very much wasn't the case. It seemed very personal. So I, I assume I guess that's something y'all really set out to do. Yeah, that's the, definitely what we set out to do, because um, I, I think other industries struggle with this as well, too. And marketing gets a bad rap, I think, for good reason sometimes, too. Right. Um, but every industry is really craving authenticity and relationships with other people. And to me, that seemed just like an easy win for us to do. And it helped too, right? Like that the people on the team were embedding themselves in the community or already a part of the community and they were really well respected as well. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's one of those things too. It's not like, I mean, I think a lot of companies will bring in marketing people who don't really actually have a genuine interest in this. And as a result, they, they can't really embed themselves in the community. They can't immerse themselves in it. Whereas y'all, you all and you specifically did have an interest in it. And that made that immersion all the, all the more easier, I guess. Yep. I would totally agree with that. Cool. So I guess I want to ask some, some UX specific questions now, because that, that's obviously one of your big focuses. And I think that's something people listening would be interested in. Um, I know, uh, 
my experience with UX, I mean, I've, I've always done development. I've always made web pages and I've, I've, I've done those types of things before and worked on product teams. It wasn't until I actually worked for FireEye that I got put on a product team that had dedicated UX people. And I, I don't know if you've ever experienced this from the UX side, but it was, it was a little bit of a learning curve for me as a, as a product guy. Uh, and a detection and, and, and security guy, because basically what it what it would be was is I would say you know I want to do this and here's how it should work, and then the UX folks would take a hold of that and they would say, well Chris, what is it you really want to do here? <laughs> uh, I was thinking as you said that, but like, but what are you really trying to do? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. They they would basically just ask really good questions to get what I really want to do. And then they would say, well, let's, what if we did this and this? And they would often come back with something that was, we had good people and they would come back with something that was much better than what I had thought of. And, and the real magic in that, from my perspective as a non UX guy was they took ideas and goals and turned those into to tangible things. Um, and I, I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, is that something, you know, I, I felt like, you know, you always see those videos where they have the babies and like they can't hear, they're deaf and they put the ear implants in and they hear for the first time and their eyes light up and they look around and they're all happy. That's how I felt at that point. That's awesome. <laughs> That's you, actually very, very awesome to hear that as a UX professional. Do you, do you run it? Do you run into like that experience more often or is it more often people get really like, you know, they, they don't want to like relinquish control and they're kind of resistant to it. So I feel that I've been very lucky in my career. Um, I have only had a handful of experiences where it was that, you know, either someone or a department didn't want to relinquish control or they just, this was a new and different way of doing things and they were very scared, but that was much more early on in my career. I feel lucky that I've been at organizations and partly like I've chosen to work for organizations that felt that design and UX, um, was not only just the present, but it was the future. Mm -hmm. So I've actually had very positive experiences bringing UX into the organization. Um, the challenge sometimes can be like the difference between UX, UI, and you know, oftentimes you, you can hear the criticism of UX just being a pretty veneer. It is so much more than that. And I think that you highlighted that when you talked about like, oh, but Chris, what are you really trying to do? Mm -hmm. Part of our job is like getting to the root of the problem that our customers are having and coming up with a solution that meets their needs and provides value. And sure, the graphic design and visual design is a piece of that, but it is only a small, small piece. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I, I've always thought too, I mean, I, I was also fortunate in my career there and that, that the UX person I was dealing with, um, basically, I, you know, he, we went through that process of Chris, what is it you're really trying to do here? And, and what he came back to me was, was really good. Like he did good work. And I, I guess that's probably critical because if that person would have came back to me with bad work, it might've jaded me towards the process and I would have been less likely to do it. So that's, that's probably the good thing. And honestly, that probably speaks to your good experiences because you're good at this and, and people appreciate good work. Right. So that's, um, I would imagine a key, um, a key part of that. Yeah. Uh, then there's also elements of collaboration too, right? Like it sounds like you went to your UX professionals and you wanted to work with them, right? That attitude matters. Yeah, well, and, and I'll be honest. I don't necessarily say I wanted to work with them, but I was at least open to the idea. Uh, I'm, I'm not without ego, and it's not one of those things where, <laughs> I, where I was like, you know, I was like, I think I can figure this out on my own, but somebody was like, you should go to UX. I'm like, all right, and I did, and it was a great thing. And it, honestly, my experience working with UX people um, over there, and we had some good folks, was um, it just really opened my eyes and helped me learn more about things I was already doing and, and learn more about UX in general. And it was just a very rewarding thing. It's nice to hear. That is really so. The open, yeah. The as long as you have the attitude of being open to new things, it's good. Yeah. Well, and that's that's life in general, right? Like open to new Absolutely. experiences, open to new ways of thinking. Um, now, what you know, uh, and this is kind of a broad question, and it may be a little cheesy, but in terms of of, of UX, do you have like a, a like an overarching like philosophy or guiding principle for for what I you do when you design? I do absolutely, and we we've kind of touched on it throughout this conversation. Um, but for user experience, you're creating something for someone, right? You, you, you need to deeply understand your users. Um, and we talked about this. You need to embed yourself in their community because how can you understand them if you're not a part of you know, their community and talking to them and actually learning their true pain points? And part of that means building deep partnerships with them. Um, so if you want to build a product that benefits them, you need to involve them early and you need to involve them often. Because ultimately, we are making these experiences and software to help them solve a problem. Um, it doesn't really make sense for us as professionals to go off on our own 
and design something in a silo, right? Great software isn't made in a silo and great design systems includes the customers that consume the experience. That's wonderful. Um, I couldn't agree more. That's awesome. So I guess kind of the flip side of that, there's a lot of bad UX insecurity. Um, <laughs> some people might say most of it's bad. Uh, maybe that's a little cynical, but but what I see more often than not is people will have good bones of a product and, and a product that can actually do some pretty useful things, but they just slap UI on it uh, without actual you know designing actual experience or thinking about experience. And as a result, like it's it's nearly unusable. And it's like you know the product can do what you want to do very easily, but because of glaring oversights, it's just not entirely usable. Why why do you think that happens so often in security specifically? Yeah, so I, I think there are a lot of um there are a lot of factors that play into this, right? So first, let's take a look at the grand scheme of things. UX as a discipline is actually pretty relatively young. Um, it was maybe only about 10 years ago that we started calling it UX, even though the underlying discipline did exist. It just really existed in a fragmented form. Um, when you think about that, many companies really have only started investing in UX in the past five, seven years as a differentiator for business um, and started to realize that good UX and usability is a key to not only um, user adoption, but usage of the product long term. So uh, what I think this really means is that um, UX just recently not only got a seat at the table, but we have really ha we finally have a voice as well, right? Mm -hmm. So we're starting to be inserted into the product delivery lifecycle. And there are interesting parallels with security there as well, right? Because if you look at the history of security, um, they haven't always existed in the product delivery lifecycle, right? And that's kind of the, uh, the movement that we're seeing now um, in this space is like, how do we get security at every stage of the game? That was UX about five years ago, right? And so when we look at security products and security measures, I think historically what has happened is because UX hasn't always had a voice, um, we haven't known how to mix it in with security. And on the other side, because security hasn't always been embedded in the life cycle either, um, they're now figuring out when we as product uh, people are trying to figure out how to embed that, mm -hmm. um, they're just seen as conflicting sources then. So I think the real challenge where we've arrived at now is how do we bring these two in together? And to me, what I tell other designers who are potentially looking to go into security is there's a it's a real green field of opportunity because these are very complex problems that aren't really solved yet. Um, but it's, to me, that's what I look at the history and why uh, products, security products in particular, haven't always um, been usable because they haven't involved a UX professional early and often enough. Mm -hmm. Do you think competition has anything to do with it as well? Because the reason I ask is, is yeah. if you look at security, even as little as five years ago, there was often in every product space, there was just one product. And now when there's five or six, they have to differentiate in some other way. And US, when you say there's, or when UX, when you say there's opportunity, I mean, that, that's really one of the greatest opportunities to, to make those products really hit home. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is a business differentiator, right? And we, we, I already touched on a few reasons why, right? Like, if it's easy to use, it's easy to adopt, it's easy to, you know, bring value faster. And when you're selling a product, that's super important. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Do you ever see UX as part of, or at least kind of a subset of, of psychology? Because I, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a psychology guy. And when I think UX, I can't think 2x too long without moving in and like basically finding myself reading psych social psychology or cognitive psychology research papers. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I like to consider it perception, mm -hmm. um, but it's psychology. And if you look at a lot of UX professionals, especially at the academia level, um, they're, they come from backgrounds of uh, human factors, which is a form as well or, or a subset of psychology. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a lot of psychology and perception involved. Yeah. And I, I mean, I guess a lot of the research methods are, are even the same, wherein you have control and sample groups, you're doing probably a lot of A-B testing type mm -hmm. things. And uh, it seems like a natural fit. Absolutely. Cool. Um, <clears throat> so are there, you know, obviously you, you, there's command, but it, aside from, from command and the stuff you're doing at Rapid7 as well, are there products you, you see out there, whether they're free or open source, that, that you just really think are getting it right in terms of UX that you would like hold up as examples of UX done well? So when you ask that, do you mean just UX or security and UX? Um, I, would, I would go both. Yeah, so um, 
I always love this question because I always feel like I can't answer it um, because I'm like, oh, what are all the the products I've used that I love to use? Mm -hmm. And so I will say like a non-security product that I always come back to and I give this as an example is Spotify. I've been a very, very early user of Spotify, um, even back in the day when its UX wasn't that great. However, um, the value, the service that they provided to me and the value, honestly, that they provided to me was worth the pain. And so what I think this really highlights is also UX does not equal UI, but form follows function. Mm -hmm. And if the product itself is bringing value to you, um, and even if it's a little painful to use, but it's giving you the value that you need, oftentimes people can be a little more forgiving of the experience. Experience, no, that's not to say that experience isn't important. It is wildly important. It's just about how do we provide that value faster and and get them on the, the product faster, right? Yeah. Um, but in regards to when I think about security and products that are that have sort of changed the way we do things. I think of uh, Duo and an Okta as examples, right? So they took a clunky concept to FA and added uh, a better experience around it and more options of experience to make it easier to adopt. And I actually really credit Duo and Okta for at least so far the adoption of uh, multi-factor authentication. I wanna pause for a minute and tell you about one of our newest sponsors, Ninja Jobs. Now, y'all know my advertising policy in this podcast. I only advertise for things that I actually like, and I really like Ninja Jobs. It certainly falls in that category. Ninja Jobs is the premier job platform used by thousands of cybersecurity professionals. And that's whether you're looking for a job or trying to fill one, Ninja Jobs has you covered. If you're considering a change in your job or just looking for your new challenge, or maybe you just want to see what's out there, Ninja Jobs is a free platform with hundreds of jobs posted weekly. You can register for free and begin your search right now. Now, on the flip side, say you're struggling to find top talent for your organization. You're having trouble filling a specific position. Skip the recruiters and head over to Ninja Jobs. You can register for free, and you actually have a special promo code for listeners of this podcast. The promo code is the source T H E S O U R C E the source, and that'll give you ten percent off your first job listing. If you're looking for a job or looking to fill one, I highly recommend you spend some time and look at Ninja Jobs. I think you'll like what you see. Let's get back to Gwen. <clears throat> you mentioned form and, and function and uh, a form kind of following function. And, and, you know, this is something I, I've thought about a lot as well. And I remember, uh, again, going back to, to my time at, at FIRE and also even my time in the in the Department of Defense helping design security products. You know, one of the things I did in both places, I took tools that were actually incredibly old. So I took tools, which I, I know you're familiar with, uh, with Squeal and Elsa, mm -hmm. yep. uh, and taking those that, that have been around for a really long time. And no offense to the folks who created those. I know those folks, the tools are fantastic, but they look horrendous. Um, and they look dated and they haven't really changed. Like they haven't changed in, in, in a decade or more for, for some of them, <clears throat> but they still work. They still have staying power. People still use and love them. And despite better looking things or more modern things, people keep going back to those tools. So, you know, when you as, as a UX person, when you see that sort of thing, I mean, I'm sure you see that as an opportunity to learn for, from like, what are these things doing right that people would stick with these after so long? Is, is there a specific approach you would take, you take to like dissecting those things and figuring out like why they have such staying power? Yeah. So I, I, I think there are a few reasons for that. Um, and there, yeah, there are a few things going on with that. So these tools came about in an era where, again, UX wasn't really an influence in the creation of products or tools. Um, but ultimately, why people adopt any tool in the first place, and we talked about this a moment ago, is the value it provides, right? Um, and that's why these tools were new at the time, and it didn't. There's nothing else really out there that did this, or if it did, it wasn't super powerful. So these tools in particular delivered on the promise of value to their users and even if it was just a little bit of painful to use or now in retrospect right like I think it's also something we should point out is we're looking at it from 2018 saying like hey these tools do not look great anymore um, but maybe at the time that was that was the style right mm -hmm. and so I think it's a little bit of UX you know being more of a newer discipline and um, looking at it from from a retrospective point of view mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, it doesn't matter how beautiful something is if it doesn't work or deliver on the promise of value. 
Um, a good experience will certainly make the usage and adoption easier and faster. Um, but if the initial value isn't there, uh, no pretty veneer is going to fix that. Right. Absolutely. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about kind of some of the <clears throat> the mechanics of, of your job, just again, because you're you're the first UX person I've had on the podcast, and a lot of people probably don't have familiarity with, with UX. So, you know, in terms of tools that you use, what would you say are the top two, three, four, five, however many you can name? tools that you spend the most of your time using when you're doing things related to UX? Okay, so I'm going to start the discussion. I'll give you some tools, mm -hmm. but I also think it's important to think about like guidelines and principles because mm -hmm. the tools don't necessarily make the job. The, the guidelines and principles do. Yeah. Um, so the tools that I use, um, I have historically used the uh, Adobe Creative Suite for graphic design in particular. So we've got Photoshop, we've got Illustrator, and we've got InDesign. And those tools in particular do different things depending on what you're trying to do. Um, but Sketch for UI in particular, Sketch app, is probably the, the tool of choice for creating mockups. Um, we use Envision as well to actually create interactive prototypes. And then I will very typically still use like HTML and CSS if I need to do something beyond what Envision can do. Mm -hmm. But those are really the only tools. Like there are other tools we can get into and talk a little bit deeper about when we're delivering product and how we deliver experiences um, for onboarding and things of that nature. But again, it all comes down to like a subset of just a few different things. Right, and, and I guess, and, and just to interrupt real briefly, they. Um, and this is probably an important distinction for folks who are listening that, that you know, UX doesn't equal UI development, right? Because yep. I guess you're not at this point developing the UI code for the product, right? Correct. That So typically the life cycle for us from just a UX standpoint goes, um, you know, there's there's a problem, right? So let's do a little, let's do some user research about this problem. Get to the heart of what the problem is. We want to treat the cause, not the symptoms. So there's user research involved. And then once you've clearly identified what the problem is, you'll make a set of requirements. Um, and we call those, we do that with user stories and a couple other different methods to say, clearly identify here's the problem and we need a solution to fix this. We'll move into, you know, um, the design phase, which is talking about interaction design and mock-ups and wireframes. And there are a bunch of different assets that are artifacts rather that come with each of these different stages. But the goal really is to um, try to build something really quickly, validate it with our users. So take what we design and build this prototype no HTML and CSS, right? This is not a product, but we're building a prototype. Um, take it to our users to validate, test it with them, make changes that we need to, make sure we're going on the right path. And then once we get to the stage of like, okay, we have designed something that meets, you know, the user's needs and will solve their problems. Now this is going to go into development. Mm -hmm. um, now the relationship between UX and UI development, that's always an interesting subject. Um, I've seen some places where it works really, really well, and I've been in other places where if you talk to the UI development people, they'll say the role of UX is to make mock-ups that are very difficult for us to build. Uh, um, <laughs> is that something you've experienced? Uh, again, I've been very lucky. Um, I think... So, I... I have been very lucky in my career that I've been able to go to companies that typically want to be more collaborative. Um, but I, that's also, I root that out in interviews as well, because that's what I'm looking for, very team-oriented collaborative environments. And so when we look at UX, and at least UX as an organization, um, I actually look for organizations, whether they're big or small, that everybody values the different inputs. And so there's an argument to be made for specialization versus generalization. I'm a generalist with like a deep expertise in a few different areas. Um, and I, I don't expect everybody to be generalists as well. But one of the movements that you see in UX now and have I have for a couple of years is this move away from everybody specializes to you can still have specializations, but you need to understand um, the complementary pieces in the life cycle. Because to your point, Chris, uh, I think what happens is when you have everybody highly specialized, and I've seen this in organizations, um, what happens is they, they become silos and they just lob it over the wall one to the next. And once that final experience gets delivered to the customer, you can feel the stitch togetherness oh, yeah. and it actually doesn't feel like a cohesive experience. So my particular uh, opinion on that is you can have specializations or generalizations, but everybody needs to understand how the other um, 
disciplines function so that we can all deliver a cohesive collaborative experience together. Mm -hmm. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. Um, now, as you look around security and, and other areas of, of the of the field, and you you obviously interact with a lot of tools, and you look at a lot of tools and how they're doing things, are there any particular areas you see that are just ripe for uh, for better UX that, that, that where we're maybe doing things well, but we could do things so much better with better security experiences? Hmm. Um. So, like security experience as a whole, whether it's like a security measure or a security product, um. I like to think of it in the way that I've talked about it in talks and writing is where we can have the biggest impact as designers are what are the areas where customers or consumers put in their information and log into an account, right? Because those are also really easily breachable areas. So password protection, you know, 2FA we've talked about um, giving information and um, how you manage credentials as well, I think are areas where designers can make a really, really big impact. And that comes a lot down to micro interactions and user education, but also building an experience that excites the user to participate in it. Because one of the things that I have thought about in the past two years being a part of the security industry is especially with technology, I don't think there will ever exist this in this world where technology is just so behind the scenes and we are just passive consumers of it. I think especially in the early, you know, security adoption that we're trying to get from the mass market, there does need to be some participation from the users. So how do we facilitate that? Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, the last question I'll ask is is kind of the same one I ask everyone. Let's say someone is listening to this podcast and they're really excited about UX or the, the intersection between UX and security and they're fascinated by your career and they want to do what you're doing. They want to be the next Gwen Betts. What would your <laughs> recommendation to them be? Uh, so this is what I give. This advice is what I give to anyone who um, is just looking to do more of this or they want to grow or they want to be something uh, be very adaptable and um, be willing to learn and do anything. So I really credit my success to just being very adaptable, but wanting to be that, right? Like not resistant to change, but also that the roots of that also come from lifelong learning um, and feeling that I can do anything. I can reverse engineer anything. I just have to put the time and dedication into it. Um, because if you don't have those attitudes, because I think it's an attitude thing as well. Um, and if you expect uh, others to, um, you know, give you the epiphany moment, I'm not sure that you're going to progress as fast as you want. Um, you own your future. You can go forth and do anything that you want. Honestly, I do believe that for the most part. Um, you just have to be dedicated, you have to be adaptable, and you have to be a lifelong learner, especially in technology, because all of this is changing so fast. The play work, or the playbook that worked yesterday isn't going to work today, isn't going to work tomorrow. So how do you change with the changing times? Great advice. Gwen, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and thanks for having me, Chris. Such a fantastic interview. I thought Gwen was incredibly insightful and brought a lot of interesting lines of thought to information security from her marketing and UX perspective. Now, if you like what Gwen had to say, make sure to reach out to her and let her know you appreciate her coming on the podcast. You can find her on Twitter at Gwenasource. And of course, I always love hearing your feedback as well. You can find me on Twitter at ChrisSanders88. So this is going to do it for this season of the podcast. We're going to take a few months off, probably start back maybe in uh, late fall, early winter 2018. So uh, it'll be a little bit of time before our third season picks back up. But I appreciate all of you who listen, and I know a lot of you listen pretty religiously, maybe in your car on the way to work in the morning or on your lunch break or while you're working out. I'm glad you're getting value out of this. I enjoy doing it uh, tremendously, and as long as I keep enjoying it, I'll keep doing it. Now, of course, the only thing I ask is that you remember I'm able to do all of this free content, uh, things like the podcast, my blog post, my uh, free online courses. I'm able to do all of that because of my paid courses via Applied Network Defense. So I have a whole lot of courses available there. They're catered towards the individual. So you don't necessarily have to have the sponsorship of your company to be able to afford them. I have courses on things like uh, ELK stacks, using ELK for security analysis, my popular investigation theory course, my effective information security writing course, as well as courses I've produced and consulted on, but have different instructors like our upcoming Demystifying Regular Expressions course and our courses on Bro and Suricata. So 
So again, if you like the free stuff, if you want to see that keep coming, uh, try to support the paid stuff as well. And I always say I want my free content to be absolutely awesome because the paid stuff is all the much better. So I think you'll really enjoy that. You can check out all of those courses I just mentioned at networkdefense.io. Last thing, if you have any guests you would like to see or even any thoughts on a format change, I might mix things up a little bit going into the third season. Make sure to reach out to me with those as well. I'm always interested in input and interested in ways I can take this podcast and make it more useful. So that can include a couple other things, maybe some specific questions you want to see me ask, specific types of guests, and maybe even suggestions for a co-host. I think bringing a co-host in here might also add some diversity to uh, the discussion as well. So that's something I'm considering going into uh, the third season. But again, we're going to take a little bit of time off before we have to worry about that, but that's something I'll be thinking about on and off. So again, thank you so much if you've listened. Uh, As always, we appreciate uh, reviews and liking and giving five stars and all those different things depending upon the uh, podcasting platform you use. So without further ado, we'll see you in a while. As always, it's a beautiful day. Catch Badgass.